This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Let me ask you a question. Are you confused, scared, concerned, worried if you're going to have a job in a week or two? Did you lose your job already? Are, are, are you trying to make payroll, not knowing how you're going to make payroll for the next pay period? I don't know about you, but I am worried about my organization. Moving to Movement is a nonprofit, but most of our money comes not from donors, but from my public speaking and from our partnering with films, all of which have been canceled until September. So I'm concerned, but I always put it in perspective. And I ask myself, how about my neighbors without homes who have already struggled with food insecurity, who have already struggled without shelter, maybe living on the streets with battling mental illness, PTSD, and drug addiction? What about them? How are they feeling right now? And can I even help? If I try to help them, am I maybe putting them at risk? These are very important questions. And lucky for me and you that the best guy to answer this question is my good friend, Nicholas Dioria of New York City Relief. And I had him on the show. We just finished our interview. We asked him these important questions and more. How do we help our neighbors without homes? How do we stand with the most vulnerable people in our community without maybe putting them in more jeopardy? So this is an important show to listen to. Now, is, as Nick says, I think in the interview, now is not the time to drop out. Now is the time to drop in. So let's drop in to the Jason Jones Show, which has been brought to you, as always, by Movie to Movement, promoting a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film and the Vulnerable People Project. Standing with the most vulnerable people in the world, the most vulnerable moments of our life, from your neighbors without homes in New York City to the Yazidi on Mount Sinjar. So here we go. The Jason Jones Show with Nick from New York City Relief. Here we go. Nicholas Diorio, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Aloha, Jason. It's great to be with you. It's uh, brother. It's a privilege to have you on my show, and uh, I think this episode. I started this show so that I could basically get people to talk to me for an hour who might not <laughs> otherwise, so I can ask them questions that I really want to know the answers to, that I would think other people would want to know the answers to. But you, I think, would talk to me anyways, right? You're my friend. Jason, I'll talk to you as long as you pick up the phone. Oh, <laughs> do I not pick up the phone a lot? <laughs> you pick up the phone all the time. Okay, good, brother. Well, so you're with New York Relief. I, I'm going to introduce you before the show kicks off, but the reason why I wanted you on my show is your organization does an amazing job, and I want you to go into depth about your organization and helping our neighbors without homes. You know, I don't like calling them homeless because it's 
They're our neighbors. They don't have homes, but you know, some of my neighbors don't have cars. I don't call them carless. You know, some of my neighbors <laughs> don't have boxing gloves. I don't, but they're our neighbors and they don't have homes. And, uh, I have been wrestling with how do I help my neighbors without homes without, cause we have a lot of neighbors that don't have homes in my neighborhood and Hawaii is notorious for our homelessness and my neighborhood. I live on the West side and we have a lot of folks without homes. And so my family for 20 years and my daughter especially has been very engaged and serving our neighbors without homes. And I want to be there for them, but then I'm addled with, am I being, am I putting them in danger? You know how, and yesterday my wife took a lady, she's missing a leg she struggles with different, different mental illnesses and she's in a wheelchair, obviously. And we saw her just, you know, roaming around the streets in the middle of the street. And my wife went and took her to, for a very nice dinner and people were looking at my wife strange. And my wife said, why were people looking at me so strange? I said, they probably thought you were being social, you know, you were putting her in danger. Um, they were probably thinking, how dare her, you know? But so that's my question. Sorry for rambling. My question is how do we, what do we do? How do we help our neighbors without homes without putting them at risk or putting our families at risk? Well, Jason, I think the first thing we need to remember is we have to find a balance between social distancing and social responsibility. You know, we want to follow the guidelines of professionals, of experts. We want to make sure that our families are safe, but we cannot allow those prescriptions, those things that we're no longer allowed to do to create this space that is blocking us from getting to know and being with our neighbor. Um, you really caught on to something which is really important, which is not to call someone homeless. And the way we talk about it at New York City Relief is we say, we talk about people who are experiencing homelessness or people who are food insecure, right? As opposed to saying someone who's homeless or someone who's hungry, we talk about it and we disconnect the personhood of the individual Right? We always acknowledge that whomever we're serving, the guest that's at our relief outreaches, the guests that we're trying to help, they have an inviolable dignity and beauty that cannot be taken away, that's got nothing to do with their state in life, whether they have a home, whether they have a, a place to live or a place to eat. So we always maintain that first initial beauty that everyone has, and then we try to address something that is happening in their life at the moment. Right, And so I feel like what we can do right now in the midst of this crisis is the first thing we need to do is recognize that millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people in our country are going without a place where they can be socially distanced from other people, right? We choose, we can make a choice to be socially distancing, right? Because you and I have been blessed with the resources to make that decision and say, I can be in my home. I don't need to be out right now. But there are hundreds of thousands of people, and here in New York, there are tens of thousands of people who don't get to make that choice. And so the first thing we need to do is recognize that there are people who don't get to choose to be socially distant. But the second thing we can do is we can support organizations that are right now still able and still willing to go out and help their neighbor, right? So as an example, New York City Relief is still serving. We have vehicles and buses that bring food and clothing and resources to the homeless. And we're still able to go out and do this work. And so a way for people to get and kind of get on the journey with us 
is by helping us, either by being a volunteer or by supporting us financially. But the first thing we all have to do, Jason, is to recognize that the neighbor on the street, the person on the street, has a beauty and a dignity that cannot be taken away. No, you're right. What I always do is like a spiritual exercise is when I see people experiencing homelessness or struggling with mental illness or drug dependency, I look at them and I say to myself, they're made in the image of God and God looks at them the same way he looks at me as his child. And so I try to look at them. I have seven children. And so I look at them as this is my child. What if this is my child? And I, and I think I have seven children. The world as we're seeing is a very scary and insecure place. And I never know, it haunts me, I never know what the future holds for my, my children and my posterity. Wars, famines, depression, exploitation, and, 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 and heartbreakingly, it's probably inevitable with seven children that grandchildren or great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren, I'll have posterity that will be my children that will be struggling with mental illness or drug dependency or food insecurity or experiencing homelessness. And so I remind myself when I look at them, I, and, it, and, it, and it's, I've been doing it now for 20 years every time I, I do this, and it's just very natural now, and it's, it's haunting. And so I would ask people to do that. But so then here's my question, Nick, that, but you're not saying it's not without risk, right? Like, so people who come, if you were to cower in your house and say, I'm not going to volunteer for a food charity, then I might be a little safer. But these people need food just like people need doctors and nurses in the hospitals, right? I mean, it's not, a, it's not a, a choice. We need people to serve these communities or they will become very sick, right? I mean, it's inevitable. And people who are living on the streets of New York, the streets are empty now. So where are they getting their food? Yeah, and I, I think, Jason, you, you're, you're acknowledging something that's real, which is the person on the street is not only hungry for a meal, right? They're hungry for some kind of social connection. Um, what I've seen in my work, I think what you've seen in your work is there's nothing like a community that can be there for the people that it serves and that that's in it. And so if once you take away that community from a person, whether it's because the citizens are indoors because of a pandemic, or maybe it's because a family has disowned somebody once that community is removed, that's where the other social illnesses kind of come, come into play, right? Whether it's drug abuse, whether it's someone who has addictions, right? Once the community is removed, then the person is left to their own devices. And that's kind of where we try to come in because we know that before a person's hungry, right, for a meal, the first thing they're hungry for is a relationship. And, you know, I love the the passage from this weekend's gospel, which is all about Jesus curing the man born blind, right? The man born blind was disowned by his community. No one was willing to engage him and help him. And in the gospel, we see Jesus interacting with him in a physical way. I mean, Jesus touches him. Jesus heals him, not just by snapping his fingers or not just by willing it through his divine nature, but he touches him. And I think Obviously, we need to be careful about whom we touch, right? These days I of mean, Jesus this pandemic, lepers. But we still we still can be present to people, even if we're not going to physically come into contact with them. Our spiritual contact still needs to be there. 
Yeah, I mean, and Jesus and his followers up until this day have gone to the lepers. I mean, St. Damien came from the other side of the world to serve our community with leprosy and then died of leprosy. But he turned what yeah. was a living hell into really, I think, a community that was the closest thing to heaven on earth at Kalapapa. We have uh, two canonized saints from this one square mile already, and that community is just a little over 100 years old, you know, 150 years old, and it's produced two canonized saints, and we have another uh, saint moving towards canonization. So serving the vulnerable is not without risk. Oftentimes you can become as vulnerable as them. One of my best friends is a missionary in Sudan. He's been there for 20 years. It obviously comes at great risk. And, but we need, we're, we're called to live and serve among our, our vulnerable communities. Are you finding it harder to get volunteers now? The need is greater than ever. Is it, has it been challenging or are people stepping up? Well, uh, the, the decisions we've made as an organization is to really, we're not turning volunteers away, but we're also not actively seeking them out, right? Okay. Because what we want to do is we want to make sure that we have people who are serving who really are experts in the way to in- interact with and encounter our guests right now. And so if a person wants to volunteer, we'll make sure they're trained up and we'll make sure they're, um, they're in, in guidance. They, they get the guidance they need, but we have a staff that is second to none in terms of serving people in all walks of life. Um, our president has been serving the homeless since he graduated from ministry school and college all over the world, Ethiopia, um, the Philippines, Latin America. We've got a VP of outreach who's been doing this for 10 years and has, is really a thought leader in New York city. So our volunteers are still coming out, but we really want to make sure people are comfortable with serving in this capacity now. And so we've really shifted, um, our staff who normally would not serve on, on the outreaches to do that because we feel like we can, we can really put a lot of support around them because they're internal people. But I must say just being in New York and seeing the outpouring of, of love and support from people, there's a desire to serve and there's a, there's a, a spirit in the city because people know that there are vulnerable people on the street. But I think we are trying to go out there as much as we can to be present to those who really have no communities to go back to. Um, I think the biggest thing we've seen is a lot of the shelters are doing a lot of testing. They're, they're trying to make sure their populations are safe. We know that at least 12 people um, in the shelter communities throughout New York City have been have tested positive. Um, hopefully that's, that number is real and it doesn't go up too much. But shelters are being really careful now for good reason what's great about what we do is we serve outside and we can spread people out in a way that they can get their meals, they can get their services without putting each other at risk. And I think that's something that makes us a little different, but really it allows us to still have a relationship with them. With anyone who receives our services, we want to begin to be on their journey. That's the most important thing to us. It's not just about the meal. It's about building the relationship with them. Well, that's why I wanted to talk to you because your organization is sort of in the same position that every one of us is in, you know, yeah. we're not going to, uh, we couldn't go to the shelter, but more, more likely like in my community, uh, there, there's not a shelter near us. We are dealing with folks who choose not to go to the shelters and 
So there's a difference, right? The folks that go to the shelters, or I should say the folks that don't present themselves to shelters are dealing with a whole host of different issues than those who do go to shelters, right? Yes. Well, and I think the trouble is that, and I don't want to, I don't want to call out individuals and organizations, but the shelter system in New York City really is broken. And what happens is that a guest will go to a shelter and they'll be abused or something will be stolen from them and they'll never want to go back again. Right. And so I think people who are wary and skeptical of shelters are, have that mentality because of something that's happened to them. So that's, that's kind of separate from what we're seeing now, which is right now, in addition to that fear of the shelter system as a whole, now we've got this fear of being in close proximity with people. And hopefully over time, as we see cases go down and as we see this stabilize, there'll be more confidence around the shelter system. But I always tell people, and I think this is something I've only really begun to wrap my head around, which is the reason why we want people to help support the homeless is because this disease, however strong it is or however far it's reached into our community, it's not eradicated until everyone is free of it, right? So by helping reduce COVID-19 among the homeless population, we're helping get rid of it for everybody. And I think that's what, that's what people don't really see yet is we can't just eliminate it among our collective group of people in our building or in our school. We have to work to eliminate it in our entire community. And I think the homeless, a person who is experiencing homelessness, is necessarily geographically part of our community. And therefore, we can't leave them behind. They have to be cured of this just as much as anyone else. Yeah, no, we have to, you know, I think of that scene in the Titanic when everyone's fighting to get in the boats, right? (laughs) Everyone, they're all on the same ship and it's going down. And there were those who chose to stay in their rooms. And and so this is maybe a backwards analogy, but those who chose not to fight for the boats, but to allow others to get on those lifeboats and those who thought only themselves. And I think that, you know, who do we want to be? Those people scrapping and climbing and punching people in the face for toilet paper or beans or do we want to be the ones to think of the vulnerable on the ship? Do we want to be those that noble person that says, I want to think about the vulnerable? Because in times of crisis, the vulnerable, first of all, are often scapegoated. They're often blamed yeah. for the problems, right? So we know now in New York there was a hate crime committed against a Chinese-American, and which struck home to me because my wife's in Chinese. She's from New York, and she's Chinese. And just shocking that today, and then you see these conspiracy theories about Chinese and the Chinese in America spreading the, I don't know, I don't even want to talk about it that's going around on the social media, it's just vulgar. And then, you know, it could come that people blame our neighbors without homes, the vulnerable communities for being, spreading it. And, and instead of saying, wow, we've done such a horrible job serving and caring for our vulnerable communities, and as someone who's worked with them a lot, these are people battling drug abuse, the abuse, they've been on the streets since they were children. They suffered horrible abuse on the streets of LA. My daughter was serving that community for years. She would get up at five in the morning, ride her bicycle uh, to the bus stop, put her bicycle on the bus and go down first thing in the morning and stay there till, till noon. And then she put her bicycle on the bus and went back to school and she would take her college classes. So I got to really know that community. There were refugees from Sudan There was a woman I met there who was a survivor of the genocide in Darfur who lost her husband and all of her children. Imagine a woman from rural Sudan wandering the streets with all this PTSD 
that's that's the kind of or we have you know people who've gotten there because it's children because of sex abuse and other things that ended up on the streets then became drug addicts and suffer from mental illness so instead of saying wow we've done such a horrible job of caring for our vulnerable communities we can blame our vulnerable communities for the spread that's something that could happen so it's very important that we we do take care of them what tips can you give us on how to keep our family safe and our neighbors with our home safe as we seek to meet their needs like sanitation well, think, wise or other, other. Yeah. I think the first thing we need to do is as every, as always, if you're touching food or if you're touching anything that's going to be ingested, you have to wash your hands. Um, if you're, if you're with children, you have to make sure that they're following the guidelines just as much as you are. Um, if you're going outside, obviously keep the appropriate distance. Um, but I feel like if you're encountering someone who you know, then that's different. But of course, we're going to naturally want to be outside. And I, and I can tell you that just being here in New York City, you know, my wife and I made time throughout the last week or two to be out in Central Park. And in an open space like that, you can really spread out and not have to worry about being around people. But there has to be this acknowledgement of where we are and how we can participate in stopping the spread. Uh, you know, New York City has over 12,000 cases right now, and you just don't know who you're going to interact with that might be um, infected or might have the disease. But I think for me, when it comes to homeless, the homeless population, we have to acknowledge that there are things we can do, whether it's wearing gloves or masks or, you know, sanitizing our hands and sanitizing the surface tops that we use when we serve all those things can be done in a way that's economical, in a way that's efficient, and in a way that is empathetic. And for me, I think too often we've lost sight of the fact that just because we want to keep our own lives in, in safety, we don't want to put ourselves at risk, it dehumanizes us. And, you know, there's a beautiful aspect of how this crisis can bring us together as a community. I, I believe that God can use this time as a way to heal and as a way to bring people together, but we cannot use this time as a way to divide. And as you said, a person who's experiencing homelessness is a vulnerable person. And in fact, they're not just a freeloader. A person who's experiencing homelessness is a hero. I mean, someone who's on the street day in, day out is surviving in the midst of great adversity. And we have to pray for that community but also realize that they have some capacities, they have some virtues and some abilities that can they can leverage over time. And I feel like that's what I've begun to see in my work. Um, you know, I've only been with this organization since early February, and I've seen heroes in the people that we serve because they survive every day despite every reason to give up. And I think that's something that inspires me in my work. And, and, you know, you're, when you say they're heroes, so many people have experienced homelessness and come out of it. You know, I had been doing homeless ministry for so long, and, and, and a, f a friend of mine who knew me since childhood said, is it because you were homeless? I was like, well, I was never homeless. He goes, you were 100% homeless. And I said, when was I homeless? He goes, when you came back from the Army, you lived in your car for nine months. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but I wasn't homeless. He's like, did you have a home? No. Where did you live? I, I, because when I got out of the army, I had got married at 18. I had two children and I was after the military, I came back to Chicago and wanted to get things set up and it was just really expensive. 
and a family member had committed to helping me a little bit and didn't. So I had to make a decision. So I used a little bit of money I had. I bought a car. I worked at Home Depot 60 hours a week, and I was going full-time to a community college. So I thought, I can get my family here quicker if I just live in my car, sleep there, shower at at the gym at the community college, and work. And so, you know, for about nine months, I... I slept in the back of this 1982 maroon uh, Buick Regal. And I can remember it was so cold, my face would stick to the vinyl, you know, and you'd have to (laughs) peel your face off. And so I thought, well, wow, I did experience homelessness, which is something that I had never thought of. And, And I was experiencing it so that I could get my family there in nine months instead of two or three years. You know, I was able to save money and then kind of get a little apartment and then be able to buy plane tickets and to bring them over. And so, so many folks have experienced homelessness. I think of Jewel, who is just a beautiful artist and performer, and she has this heart. Well, I, I think she experienced homelessness much of her childhood. And so, so many of us probably listening to this podcast, I, we, have, we have a huge, we have a lot of listeners in Kurdistan and, and, and other places in Iraq and Syria right now, which has a huge problem with homelessness, just whole communities in some places like Sadr City, I think 90% of folks still don't have homes. So uh, it's not just a local problem. So you said something that, that struck me as important. You said if you don't know them. So if you live in a community that has a lot of folks out there without home, experiencing homelessness and you don't know them, you got to make it your commitment to know them. You know your other neighbors, yeah. don't you? You need to, and it can be awkward at first. I kind of have always been that way. In fact, I probably am married because of, I know the, the folks in my neighborhood who don't have homes because on my, I, my wife told me she fell in love with me on our first date. I said, when did you fall in love with me? She said it was on our first date. We were at a restaurant and we were walking to a bar. And she said, as we walked down the street, she's like, all these homeless people knew who you were. They're like, hey, Jason, hey, Jason, hey, Jason. There's this one friend of mine, Calvin who wasn't homeless, he was blind though, and he would stand there every day and he was blinded in an assault and he was trying to get, he'd been there for 20 years with a little briefcase that helped me get justice. And I would work with him at the library and at the state ledge and he was my friend and we'd go out for ice cream. And and so we were walking by, I'm like, hey, Calvin, I just sat there on the ground and Calvin and I talked. And my wife said, it was just watching you talk with Calvin. It was at that moment, I knew that you were, either crazy or had a big heart or both. And it's probably both, but she's like, that's when I fell in love with you. So I've always, and I don't know why, but I've always just made it a, a thing. I need to know. I need to know people in my neighborhood. You need to know the people and in that, your neighborhood. And that's especially true here in New York, Jason, where, you know, people think of New York as this massive metropolis. Um, but really it's just block by block communities. And what I found is, and I've lived in almost every part of the city. I've lived in the South Bronx. I've lived in Greenwich Village. I've lived on the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side, Midtown. But each part of the city has a community of people who, for whatever reason, are just on the street. They, they perpetually have issues finding places to live. And it's amazing how throughout my 10 years of being in New York, Whenever I go back to some of these communities, I run into the people that I knew when I used to live there. And that really makes them, makes a person on the street feel as though they belong to a community. And I feel like that is something we 
can give as a gift, right? It's nothing that is going to help them survive physically, but it's almost like that spiritual food that Jesus talks about when he was at the, the well with the woman, with the Samaritan woman, right? He had food in his heart, which was to do the will of the Father. And whenever we interact with someone and we listen to the Holy Spirit speak to us, to introduce ourselves to someone or to be vulnerable and talk with someone we don't know, that's doing the Father's will. And I feel like there's always opportunities for that in our lives, whether it's here in New York City or whether it's in the Middle East or whether it's in Sudan, right? There are always moments when our conscience, the Holy Spirit speaking for our conscience, can tell us and let us know what the Father wants us to do. And being able to listen is such an important part of who we are and, and why we have so much beauty is because we have this capacity to listen to what the Lord wants us to do. Yeah, and when you get to know these neighbors, right, Nick, they're the most be- Some of them, look, they're going to I've experienced all sorts of, you know, downside struggles of, of helping vulnerable people. It's to be expected, you know, struggling people who make bad choices struggle and make bad choices. But so what? You know, we have to be there for them. But on the on the flip side, it's just made my neighborhood so much more beautiful and so much richer to me to have all of these friends everywhere I go. Hey, Jason. Hey, hey, my man. Hey, brother. And um, it just made made it and my my life so much richer. And one thing I know about New York, I have an experience. I had a beautiful experience in New York City when we when we made the film Bella. Uh, there was Goya Foods donated several hundred thousand dollars to buy out tickets in New York City. And all they asked was that I made sure that for every dollar they gave me, there was somebody sitting in a movie seat, right? So I gave them my word. So I was on the streets in New York. We were working with radio stations and through Chris Slattery, who's a great New Yorker. We had public schools being bused there and we were just, uh, but I was on the streets of New York from 10 a.m. till 1 a.m. for several weeks, making sure these tickets were all distributed for our movie Bella. And that's where I fell in love with New York. Before that experience, I, even though my wife's a New Yorker, I told her, I hate New Yorkers. They're so mean. They're rude. I would almost get in fights. You know, almost, I probably almost got arrested every day in New York when I would go because you guys talk different, especially you talk a lot different than Hawaii, right? I'd be, hey, out of my way, idiot. And I'd turn around and go, bro, you want to fight me, bro? Because in Hawaii, that's like, those are like fighting words. But in New York, hey, out of my way, idiot. It's like, excuse me, sir. I know you're excited by the big buildings, but when you look up, your uh, 20,000 people behind you are going to be late to the, their train. So just move close to the wall and then keep gawking at the big, big buildings. Okay. Redneck. That's what they were saying. <laughs> That's a great translation. It's a but, great translation, but they don't got time to say that. So they go, yo idiot out of the way. And then I listen to how they would talk to each other and they'd be like, whatever, you, whatever, you know? And then, and then, and so it was on the streets of New York where I realized New Yorkers are phony. They act so tough and rude, but they're truly the nicest most beautiful people in the world. And what, we, what you said is what I saw is this big city isn't. Because I'm from Chicago, which is neighborhoods. So it's very clear, too. You don't go to Chicago and see one big city. You feel the neighborhoods. Unless you're a New Yorker, I think you just go there and see this monstrous metropolis. But then you discover, no, these are neighborhoods. All with their flavor and their community and their old timers. And each neighborhood is another world away. Uh, in my favorite movie, A Guide to Recognizing Our Saints, that's set in Queens, that every New Yorker has to watch, by Ditto Montiel. Um, 
His dad's like, if you want to see Puerto Ricans, go here. If you want to see black people, go there. If you want to see Italians, go there. You, you know, this is, you don't need to leave New York. What do you need to go anywhere for? I think he was saying you don't even need to leave Queens. I was thinking, why didn't you go to Manhattan? Just, you just need to stay in Queens. <laughs> I think that's what the dad was saying. Because his son wanted to take a train to Manhattan or something. But the dad's like, we got everything in Queens. But uh, the other thing I learned about New Yorkers is they are kind. They are generous. They talk different. That's all. And my one experience that was so beautiful is there was this very big guy. This, he was very big, very strong looking, and very aggressive and loud. Big black guy. And he saw me giving tickets out like at 8 in the morning. I, 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 no, it was like 10 in the morning. He went to see a movie. Then he came back, and, and then he was helping me give out tickets. And I was at first a little afraid, saying, I'm going to give out less tickets with this guy than more because he's – like, you got to go. He's being very aggressive. Go see this movie. Go see this movie. And he's clearly, you know, um, a neighbor without a home. And he's being very aggressive. But it was working. And people were loving him. So then he, and I said, he says, hey, I got to go to the shelter. Um, I got to get back to the shelter. And I said, hey. And I had to be thoughtful. I'm like, I can't have, you know, the entire shelter have a 7 o'clock showtime. The theater is going to kick me out. So I said, if you want, um, we're the last movie showing tonight. There's a 1250 showing. And I would love to just give the whole shelter tickets and I will buy popcorn and soda and candy for everyone. He goes, no, we can't do that because the shelter, um, we have to be there by 10 p.m., I think he said. I said, that's okay, brother. I understand. I don't want you guys to have to be out on the street all night because you, you got to see a movie. And then you would not believe, I'm going to cry just saying it, you would not believe what happened. It was like a 1250 showing and Manny Perez, another great New Yorker, right? So then Manny Perez is there with me and we're passing out tickets at midnight for Goya Foods to make sure we're giving out all these tickets. The entire shelter comes together in formation. All the oh guys. my goodness. And they were like, yo, we know we're going to have to sleep out tonight, but it's worth it because we want to see this movie and you're so generous. And then I gave the gentleman who brought everybody, I said, here, can you do me a favor? Because I was doing something else. Can I gave him like a hundred bucks. I said, can you go buy popcorn? And he, he put his hands up and he said, don't give me that money. Don't let me touch that money. And I said, why? He goes, I won't go buy popcorn, sir. I'm going to be right on the street. I'm a drug addict. Don't let me touch that. I thought, what a beautiful man, you know? He didn't take it and go buy drugs. He he knew that he was resisting. And even if he did, I couldn't be mad at him. You know, it was my stupidity because I wasn't thinking. Um, and that's why working with our neighbors at homes and our vulnerable communities, it's not a common sense type of thing, right? It's, it's, yeah, you, have, you have to learn, right. you have to learn uh, how to be kind and how to be charitable. And it's not about virtue signaling, not about feeling better, but actually meeting their needs. It's not about doing more harm than good. It's actually about doing good. And so then I went in and I bought popcorn for everybody and soda and candy for everybody. And of all of my Bella screenings, that was the most well-received. And they loved it. And it wasn't because our movie Bella, you, you've seen our movie Bella, right, Nick? Absolutely, yeah. So it wasn't the abortion element to it, the element that so many of them resonated because they had been convicted of crimes. They were, some of them, there were a lot of, they, they told us that they had done things. What resonated with them was that Eduardo's character, Jose, who was the hero, went to prison yeah. for killing a little girl and is redeemed. Remember, he kills a little girl in a drinking and driving accident. Yeah. And, um, or just obnoxious in driving accident. I don't remember if he was actually drinking. And, um, yeah, they were playing the radio. They were kind of like talking about, 
all the all the money there because they're they're on the way to the sign the contract, right? Yes, you for remember this, better this than big me. Contract. Shame on me. I, I can tell you the whole story if you want. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what resonated with these guys. Like they said, we can be redeemed and we can be good men and good men too. This is all they were all men. So that was my beautiful experience one evening on the forty forty second Street Theater with. Uh, this whole community, uh, this this whole community of men who are vulnerable and uh, were experiencing homelessness, struggling with different things. We all watched a movie together and ate popcorn and candy, and and it was really one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had in my life. And it's, it's well, I think this is something you talk about, you know, when you when you've done these these Uber videos where <laughs> you just talk about the. The, the Holy Spirit action plan, right? There's this, this ability to open yourself up to what the Lord wants you to do. And I feel like that's the beauty of the outreaches that we have here in New York is, you know, we don't, we have no idea who's going to show up to get food from us. We have no idea. We cannot, we don't plan who's going to be there. They just know words out on the street that New York City Relief's going to be here at Chelsea Park at, you know, 10 o'clock every Wednesday, right? And so when that word gets out, people can believe what we do because of what we say lines up with what, what our actions are. And I feel like that's what a community looks like, right? It's a place that is trustworthy and is, and you can rely on it. And I feel like that's what I think will come out of this. The, the beauty of what could come out of this, this pandemic, this situation is people can reestablish their connections with the communities that they're in because they realize that that's where their life actually happens. And I feel like that's, that can be one of the great blessings from, from this entire experience. Yeah. Because we're all going to experience kind of loneliness and antsiness, right? Yes. We're going to experience what communal creatures we are. That's the one thing I've been doing. It's been, it's been a bit tiring. I have to admit, I've been calling all my friends who I know in places that are in lockdown, who live in studio apartments alone. (laughs) And I'm like, I got to make, I made a list. Like, who do I know that's, living in New York in a studio or even now in Honolulu, I have friends that are, you know, we're going to be on lockdown. I'm like, okay, there's a lot of phone calls I got to make every day or maybe we can do a group call. And uh, we're actually going to be doing something to kind of on that note, uh, partnering with March for Life, the National March for Life organization, movie to movement, starting this Saturday is going to be screening different movies of ours where people are going to all watch okay. them together. And then we're going to talk with the uh, folks. So, Crescendo is going to be this Saturday. I think it's at March for Life's picking the time. I don't know exactly the time. Stay tuned. And Jennifer Cadena, co-founder of Movie to Movement and actress in, in, in Crescendo. We're doing Crescendo first. And then Patty Millette, who produced the film with me and happens to be the mother of Justin Bieber. She's looking at her flight time. She's going back home. Uh, I shouldn't be saying that on the air, but she's going somewhere. I don't know. And uh, <laughs> but, uh, the worst, Give her the itinerary. I'm out, the worst everybody. friend ever. Uh, but no, she, uh, she's going to do her best to be on there. And because she understands, you know, we, we want to have a community like experience for everybody, but you, you know, we're doing it for families, but Nick, you are, first of all, you're one of the most big hearted friends I have. Like you're one of those friends whose heart is so big and so beautiful. And you're such a good man and you are in the place to be. You're in New York city. I mean, just my wife and I argue and we argue, which is a better city and Chicago is such a big, beautiful city. New York is such a big, beautiful city. And I can't pick between the two, but I, I think it's a tie. But New York is... Well, 
But yeah. One of the great blessings that I've had, Jason, is the chance for you to be in the midst of some of the work I've done, whether it's teaching, whether it's being out on the street. And I just, I'm blessed that you've been open to do that because, you know, not every, uh, not every uh, guy wants to come in and be in the midst of teenagers in a, in a Catholic high school. That's, um, that's, that's really an inner city school. And, you know, you've taken on that challenge twice. And I'm just so grateful that you've been willing to get in the midst of what's happening here in New York. No, I will go to an inner city school any day of the week. Just don't don't send me to an affluent Catholic suburban high school. <laughs> Not going to go well. I, it, I go very well in inner city schools. Uh, I don't do so well in the affluent schools. Uh, those those students of yours were the most beautiful, the beautiful young men, honorable young men. In fact, I kind of felt like my personal story didn't resonate with them because I kind of had such a broken childhood. Because I really thought when I met them, when you kind of told me the demographic, I didn't think those were the demographics. I knew it was a minority neighborhood, clearly, but I thought they kind of came from privileged families from around the city. And when you shared with me, and you feel free to say the name of school if you want or not, I don't know, but, but the, the, the students seemed so well-formed and so healthy. And that was just in my appearance, you know, I'm sure as a teacher, you get to see a little behind the, behind the you get to know intimately the struggles but just at the first, when I got to meet them, I thought, wow, they probably didn't understand my life experience. But then I realized those boys and I had very similar life experiences. And that's why to come back a second time and realize I was talking to my homies. It's always so good to have a community, to talk to somebody who knows what you're talking about. I was just talking to yeah. a friend of mine right now, uh, right before we talked, um, she has experienced fame like no one else in the world. Very few people could. And I said, you need a friend. Like, do you have friends like you who you can say, remember when this happened? Remember when that happened? Yeah. Ah, I know. Oh, man, that's. But, you know, that she's like, no. I mean, maybe some parts of it people understand. But in totality, people really don't understand. But so when I was, for me to go talk to those young boys was a blessing because I wish that um, I felt when I was a young man, I knew no one understood me. No one understood what I was going through. And um, no one, and they didn't speak to me like they understood. So any chance I get to talk to young men who are, are wrestling the same dragons I had to wrestle to, it's a privilege. Yeah, and I, I think that they have, they have a, such a, a beautiful heart. I think the challenge that I found, and even in the, the, the community of people experiencing homelessness, is you know, they they don't have the tools to keep their heart pure and as a sanctuary, right? The, the Lord has given us this beautiful heart and we have to cherish it as a sanctuary of where he dwells in us and where the beauty of who we are can come from. And I think what I've loved in my life is the chance to be around people in different communities that really need to be cared for and just shown a sense of humanity and I think that's why you and I have really built this bond together is we just want to be vulnerable to people and show, show one another and show these communities the beauty of what it means to be human. And I think one of the great lines that, that I plagiarize from you all the time is, you know, no matter where you go in the universe, you will not find anything more beautiful than the human being and the human spirit. And I feel like if, if we can give that message to the people we interact with, then we've given them something that they probably don't see in themselves. 
And I think that's the beauty of, of working with people who are vulnerable is we get to show them something about who they are, which they don't see themselves. You know, that's, that's, that's why I'm doing this podcast. That's why I make movies. That's why I write. I think it's a, if you want to know if God has a sense of humor, I really feel like God's mission for me is to help the world see the human person as the human person really is as I've been given the grace to see the human person as having this incomparable dignity, beauty, and worth. Now, that doesn't mean if you don't cut me off in traffic, I'm not going to give you the bird, right? Or if you talk in a movie theater, I might snap at you. But, but I do see, I want the whole world to see the human person the way I see it, the human person, and the way the human person is. And if you want to know that God has a sense of humor of all people, I think he said, Jason, you go tell the world that, <laughs> that they're all beautiful, that the human person's beautiful. And I think that's ironic. I mean, he could have picked a lot of people to, to do, to do, to, 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 to have that mission. But, um, and it's, it's, it's the most obvious thing in the world. Like once you hear it, right. And in most people who aren't Christians, they've never even heard this idea that the human person has is the most beautiful created thing in the universe. Um, but then once you hear it and you look around, you realize that's self evidently true. That's, you can't yes. argue with that. You know where you're going to go in the universe. That's going to be more exciting than seeing another human being. Nowhere, nothing. There's nothing, no black hole, no exploding star. Not, there's nothing you're going to see. Um, so. And the other, and the other part of that just quickly is no matter who is in your life, no matter how long they've been in your life, the beauty of the human spirit is you can always learn more from that other person. Um, I know that in a marriage, in a relationship, there's always more to learn about that other person. And it's almost this overflowing well that is in the human person that no matter what we do, no matter how long we spend with one individual, there's always more to learn. And I think that's part of the beauty that we're talking about. There's a great excitement in knowing that every day you can wake up and learn something more about someone you love or someone that you care about. There's always more to learn about that person. Because we're a mystery. Yes. We're as mysterious as the yes. Trinity. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Like we're a mystery. Well, Nick, some parting shots, some practical stuff. Now that we've went into the stars and the clouds, like <laughs> metaphysics, what's some practical stuff? What, what can we do? What can we learn from you and your organization those of us in our neighborhoods, what can we learn from you? What can we put into practice in these next uh, couple of weeks to make sure our most vulnerable neighbors feel more loved than ever? How about that's our goal? You know, my, one of my goals I wrote down for this whole crisis is I want the camps closed with the Uyghur. Big goal. The whole world's looking at China. Let's get these concentration camps closed. Let's get the Uyghur, let's get the Uyghur freed. Let's get them out of house arrest. Let's get the 3 million out of the concentration camps. Let's stop the harvesting of organs and the sex trafficking and the slavery let's end the greatest holocaust in the 21st century now that's my goal how about for a small real uh, a practical goal for each of us let's make sure that our neighbors without homes feel more seen than ever more love than ever so with your organization's experience on how to do that wisely and thoughtfully and safely what's your practical advice to those of us to help our folks our friends experiencing homelessness well, I don't want to make it just about New York. Um, all, of, all of your listeners, Jason, are in a community that has some group of people who are experiencing either 
homelessness or they're experiencing some kind of food insecurity. So the number one practical thing they can do is find an organization or even take the time to get to know someone who is food insecure and who is experiencing homelessness and just be present to them. And if you feel moved and called, provide assistance to them. Uh, If you're in the New York City area, we would love for you to partner with us. Again, we're New York City Relief, and um, we go out on the streets five times a week to visit with the thousands of people that receive our services. And so if you're, if you're in New York City, we'd love to, for you to partner with us. But no matter where you are in the country, the number one thing to do is to recognize, locate, and um, be present to some organization that works to give food and services to people who experience homelessness. I would say number two, you know, make sure you call someone who you know, like you said, is in isolation, who maybe they live alone or they're, they're out of work. Begin that relationship again. Begin enter back into that 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 common experience with that person. And then the third thing to do, which is what everyone is saying, do whatever you can to slow the spread. Right. So whether that's something as practical as washing your hands or keeping a safe distance, but do it in a way that balances social responsibility with social distance. Do it in a way that does not dehumanize the people that are most vulnerable to this disease, do it in a way that promotes the beauty of the people that are vulnerable and the people that might be suffering. Because we know that whatever happens after this crisis, we want to make sure that we're better human beings. We want to make sure that we're part of stronger communities. And we want to make sure that we're living in a place that we're proud of because we came through it in a time of great struggle and a great challenge. But we came through it because we loved each other and we cared for each other more than we did at the beginning. Uh, that's beautiful. And I think this is, you saw it in New York city right after nine 11. And in a way, this is the global nine 11. Yes. I think that's a great way to see it. It's something that's uniting us for better, or for worse. It's bringing us together as a human family, but it's something that can also make us stronger as a human family. I want you to restate that, that you had a, a um, I don't know how you put it. You said you have to locate, make yourself present. What was it? Identify, locate, uh, center serving the vulnerable. What, how did you put it? You had a little. Yeah, like, I think. <laughs> you had a little slow in there. We, <laughs> I, I think that I was talking about locating an organization, being present to your neighbors, but also protecting yourself. Oh, I like that. And I feel like, I feel like if we can do those three things, right? We can not just survive from this pandemic, from this crisis, but we can thrive through it and we can be better on the other side of it. And I feel like that's, that's what's in front of us. It's in front of every human being right now, but it's something that can make us become stronger in, at the end of it and make us be more present to the people that maybe before the crisis we didn't acknowledge or we didn't notice. But now because we've recognized how vulnerable we are, we can finally begin to see and understand not just the people that we know, but the people that we don't know. That's beautiful. There's an app that we're using. It's called Neighborhood App. They're all different kinds that our neighborhood uses. And I think it's called Next Door. That's it. I'm sorry, Next Door. So <laughs> I'm not on it because I get mad. I used to get don't mad cor- at it. Don't correct the host. Never correct no, the correct, host. No, correct this host because he's <laughs> dumb as rocks, okay? 
But I, um, yeah, next door, I was on it, but I kept getting mad at all the kind of Manini, that's the Hawaiian word for small, Manini people complaining about weird things. So I, unsub- I took it down, but then my wife, she's on it and active on it. So she put out there, I said, please, babe, just let everyone know we're going to tithe because I am a, a prepper. I don't, I don't think, I, I don't like the term prepper. I'm th- I have seven children and I want to make sure they're fed. So we have about a year's supply of food, not a lot of toilet paper, but we have a hundred rolls. So I said, just put on that app that we will, to the best of our ability, meet the needs of anyone who has any help, needs any help. So there was somebody who's already run out of toilet paper. Can you believe that? They've already run out of toilet paper. <laughs> like, really? Were you not watching the news? And then um, a lady broke her leg. She needed the garbage. Her garbage pulled out for garbage day. So I, my daughter went down the street and pulled out the garbage. And so that's just a little way. You know, it's not about, you're not going to be able to Netflix and, and chill anyways because uh, I hear it keeps freezing because everyone's watching Netflix. What I did with my kids on Sunday night is I said, your dad is your father, but today, for the next couple of weeks, I'm also your platoon leader. We're a family, now we're a platoon. And every day, this is like military time. This is martial law in this house. They have tasks. <laughs> they have tasks. It's pretty serious, you know. And uh, when I, I gave this speech, they were all listening, except for my six-year-old who was kicking, doing karate kicks in the air alone, fighting a, an imaginary dragon or something. But the other kids listened. And so I've got them doing just tasks to keep them, you know, doing productive things from gardening to running chores, doing chores for the neighbors. And so now is a good time to make yourself present to your friends, find out who's helping the vulnerable in your community. It's not just about looking at this as a, as a worldwide summer break. That's exactly right. Yeah. This isn't time off. It's time in that more than ever, right? This is more than ever time in. Well, you guys are in it more than ever. This is, I hope folks are listening. I'm going to put your link on there. Donate. Uh, if you can, you know, you got to put your mask on yourself and keep your family safe. Uh, and be thoughtful there. But if you're in a position that where you can, New York Relief, they're in the biggest city, doing the biggest job at the biggest time. You know what my mission is? You, you probably know our motto is standing with the most vulnerable people in the world, the most vulnerable moment to their life. And I never thought that New Yorkers would be again in that position. But in, in many ways, I would think that, that your organization right now is truly serving among the most vulnerable people in the world at the most vulnerable moment to their life. So I just want to thank you for standing with them. And, you know, we're coming up on Easter, and I always look at, at uh, St. John, you know, the, the one apostle who, who, wasn't, who didn't die a violent death. And I always have said it's because he was crucified with Christ. He was there. And um, I think that we all, I looked at St. John as a model, like, let's be with Christ on the cross. Other people can, can be with him at the Sermon on the Mount. Other people can be in the, with him when the, Jerusalem's waving him in. But I want to be with him when he's at the cross, and there's no better, better way to do that than serve the vulnerable in the way that you and your organization are, Nick. So thank you very much. Jason, thank you so much, and I hope to be with you soon. Aloha. God bless. Me too. Aloha. Eating some New York pizza. Aloha, everybody. Uh, this is uh, – by the way, oh, I want to say this. I should have said it earlier. I said I was going to do it seven days a week. I was vetoed by my wife. She said, you need uh, – you need uh, two days off for the family. So we're going to do five episodes a week as we get through this crisis. And if, if my wife's not paying attention on Saturday and Sunday, I might sneak in a special episode here or there, but at least five days a week. And, I, and guys, I'm so grateful that I was able to have Nick on. This is something you can do practically right where you are. For most Americans, you have neighbors without homes. All of us have friends who are really lonely right now. And when you think about it, 
and you start making a list, it's going to be a bit overwhelming. It was a bit overwhelming for me, and I feel like I'm such a bad friend to so many people right now because I haven't even begun working my way through this list. But that's just something practical you can do. As Nick said, be present to folks who are just going to be sitting home alone, being isolated. And you may be able to get their address. Who knows? You might have to start writing them letters soon. We're all going to be on the phone talking to each other. I don't know if our, our cell phone carriers are going to be able to handle all of this. Who knows? Nick said, this is not time out. This is time in. So I'm going to have you stop listening to my voice so you can get into it. And this has been another episode of the Jason Jones Show. Until tomorrow, aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Ooh, 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 